You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with successful real estate investor Ben Leibovich about what luxury house hacking is and how it differs from traditional house hacking. You'll hear just how successful Ben has been in the real estate space, and despite that, he still chooses to house hack. Often people think that house hacking isn't for them, but Ben talks about the various different ways it can be for you, even if you're already having great success. So without further delay, let's jump right into today's episode with Ben Leibovich. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Ben Leibovich. Welcome to the show, Ben. Robert, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So for those in the audience who aren't familiar with you, give us an overview of your background and how you get into real estate. I'm a violinist by training, and I was diagnosed with a condition when I was in college that you know doctors said probably want to do something else because it was an autoimmune condition. And it impacted physiology and you play the violin and you're using fine motor skill and you can't do that. So I needed to find another way what to do with life, first of all. And secondly, I need to figure out what to do with money. And so I started studying and eventually arrived at real estate. That's in that sense, my story may be a little bit different from maybe some people because most of us just want, you know, we want to quit our job because we don't want to be underneath somebody, answering somebody. We want to make more money, what have you. And it's all good. All of that is very legitimate, very cool. I kind of had a necessity though. It was less of a desire and more of a necessity. I had to figure out some ways to do that didn't require me showing up necessarily and punching the clock, at least not in traditional sense of words. So that's how I ended up in real estate. Why specifically real estate though? I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you could invest, right? You could invest in the stock market. You could start a business, you could do things like that. So why real estate? Well, very simple. To start a business, you got to be smart. To invest in stocks, you need money. And what can I tell you? I was a violinist, not quite graduating from college, be one of the best schools in the nation, but still. So that right there is a good question. And that's exactly the answer. You have other people's money, you have leverage, you have creative finance, you have the inefficient market characteristics of an inefficient market. So you have all those things working for real estate that are not as easy, plentiful to come by or easy to execute in other markets. Yes, you can have leverage in stocks. Yes, you can, you know, you can do all that stuff, but it's harder. It's harder. Real estate just lends itself to being creative, starting with nothing and doing, making something. So what did the early days of your portfolio look like? Nowadays, I buy apartment complexes. So 100 units and and up. But in the early days, I started like everybody else with single family. I figured out for me that didn't work so well. Went on to small multifamily, duplexes, fourplexes, sixplex, tenplex, that kind of thing. And stayed in that for about a decade, picking up intellectual worth and uh, moved on from there. And so I want to start our conversation today by talking briefly about the strategy of house hacking. And then I want to go into some of the other strategies that you've implemented 
and recommend for new investors. So let's start with what is luxury house hacking? So house hacking, the concept is age old, okay? But the beautiful thing about real estate is that it doesn't just solve one problem. It has capacity to solve any problem, many financially related problems. So house hacking for me and luxury house hacking was a function of, hey, I'm relocating my family from Ohio to Arizona, to Phoenix. Why? Because I'm tired of the snow. I'm tired of the sleet. I'm tired of my fingers falling off when I'm scraping windows at 11 p.m. after work You know, in the wintertime. I was, I was done with that. Kids were growing up. They needed opportunities. We didn't have those opportunities in a little town that I was living in. And uh, we moved to, to Phoenix, but we didn't move to squeeze ourselves. So, so we sold a house in Ohio and we knew we would want a better house in Phoenix. We knew we would want a bigger house with a pool, with travertine, with nice showers, with all the things we didn't have in Ohio. We, just, we were ready to live it up a little bit, but I didn't want to pay for it. And so the whole conceptually, the whole house hacking principle comes into play when you say, hey, you can have what you want as long as you're not the one paying for it. And this isn't just true with housing. This is true with everything. You know, most of your audience probably have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? So Rich Dad, you know, Robert Kiyosaki is famous to, to coin the terms, here's an asset over here, here's a liability over here. If you want a liability, great. I'm not going to fork you for it. Buy an asset so it makes money, then take that money and pay for the liability that you want. Pay for the doodad that you want. This is what a house hack is. I bought myself a house that pays for itself. It pays for itself by way of having a, an attached ADU, attached dwelling unit, or a mother-in-law suite. In Arizona, we call them casita. And the only thing luxury about it is the fact it's a nice house. So I just I didn't want the money for the large house to come out of my pocket. But as long as it's coming out of somebody else's pocket, I'm all good for it. Large house, nice house, I'm, I'm good with it. But the concept I want your audience to understand and this is what you understand as an entrepreneur, is that have anything you want. You just have to figure out how to make somebody else pay for it because you can't afford it because you're broke because you're an entrepreneur. Of course, you're broke. Majority of us don't make it. And partially probably because we try to pay for everything ourselves. So house hacking works this way. But the jump, the intellectual jump you have to make is, you know, if you start with rich dad, and you go like, okay, so I got to buy this asset so it pays for my doodad. The intellectual jump, the next step is, okay, how can I skip a step? Can I like take this doodad and twist it upside down so it itself becomes its own asset? So it itself pays for thyself. Therefore, you don't have to buy two things. You just buy one. Welcome to house hacking. Instead of buying a rental house over here, generating cash flow in it, and then throwing that cash flow to pay for a nicer house for my family to live in. I just went ahead and bought a nicer house to begin with, but I twisted it upside down so it pays, generates income and pays for itself back and forth. The point is, here's a doodad. Can you be creative enough to look at that from a different focal point and ask yourself, how can I take this doodad and twist it upside down, put it on its head and make it into its own asset? And then I can have it. And so in that specific deal, was that ADU able to pay for the entire property? I still live here. I still live in this house. And no, it doesn't. It probably pays about 
50 to 70% on a monthly basis. So who is this strategy good for? And it sounds like it's probably good for a lot of people, but who might it not also be good for? Well, listen, I have two kids and they're 10 now. And when we moved into this house, there were seven. So a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I can't do it because I have a wife and she's not going to want to have somebody over here. And this is true. That's why I did a luxury house. I did a house hack where I'm living over here. Here's my house. Now we have a courtyard. Now we have the attached dwelling that's attached by way of a garage wall that doesn't share a wall with my house, has its own private entrance. So realistically, when people come in for five days, I don't even know them. I don't even know who they are. I never even see them half the time. Okay. It's, it's all systematized more or less. And communication happens via email and it's just right there. And then I don't have to deal with the leases. I don't have to deal with the prospect of evicting somebody. I don't have to deal with collecting rent. They pay with a credit card through Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO, whatever, and the money just shows up in my account. And that's just fine by me. But it takes a specific kind of house. Because was I going to ask my wife to compress her lifestyle to a point where if you're young, like you, for instance, if you wanted to rent out your bedroom, you could. God bless. If you wanted to rent out your bedroom and have somebody sleeping on the sofa in the living room, you could. If that's what you want to do, great. Am I going to do that? I got two kids. They're at the time seven years old. My wife followed me to Arizona. She wants me to go buy some apartment complexes. She doesn't want to be sharing her house with some stranger, different person every three nights, five nights. So the luxury component in House Hack refers to, hey, we like the idea, but we're not willing to compress. We're just, we're a family. We're not willing to compress our lifestyle to accommodate this idea. So can you take this idea of House Hack and bend it to accommodate us instead. That's another concept I want your audience to think on. Everybody always looks at themselves and says, okay, here's my circumstance. And based on the circumstance, be it financially afford or time-wise or whatever, the question is wrong. The question should be, here's my circumstance, but here's what I want to do. But what I want to do requires a different set of circumstances. So change your circumstance. You're only alive once. Why wouldn't you change your circumstances so you can do exactly what you want? So is there anyone that house hack wouldn't be good for? Am I going to do it for the rest of my life? Probably not, because there's a point when it's just not important to make money. When you get to that point in life where money is unimportant, then you don't do anything for the expressed purpose of money be it starting a business or doing house hack or buying apartments or whatever. If you have more than enough to your definition of what enough is, so you don't do it anymore. So can it be done for, with anybody? Yes. My wife sold a house to a couple of retirees. They came to town for a couple of years to help out their daughter who got a divorce and she had kids and they wanted to be close by. They bought a casita house. They actually moved into the casita and rented out the whole house. They put a management, property management in place so they didn't have to deal with any of that. But this is a couple of retirees. So age is not a limiting factor. Time is not a limiting factor because you can outsource everything. I don't, but you could, right? So who's it bad for? Exactly what, what makes it bad? It has very, you know, it's just a desire thing. Like if you don't want anybody in your house aside for your family, I completely concur with that. I appreciate it. Don't do it. But aside for that, if you're going to go out and buy your first rental, why do this instead? 
A, you can get a better loan because there's a primary residence, so you can get it with a lower down payment, better rate in terms. B, it makes about three times as much money as a uh, regular rental, and that's a function of velocity of money. Velocity of money is a lot faster, and that produces higher return. So in lieu of going out and buying as a first investment, a house is absolutely perfect. Maybe it's not perfect when you're renting out your bedroom over here and you have to share a bathroom and a kitchen with some stranger. Maybe that's not perfect. But what I do, the style that I do, where we don't share any spaces, they're over there, I'm over here. I don't see how that's not perfect for anybody. Yeah, it sounds like it really could work for anyone. It's really, it sounds like it's more of a mindset thing putting yourself in a situation where you're okay with maybe you know you don't have to live in a five bedroom house and live with four roommates and house hack that way maybe you do a luxury house hack like you said it's more there's a way to do it for everyone it's just finding the way that works for you yeah there's a way to do it for everyone but if you stop your thinking right there what is there doesn't work for me therefore I can't do anything about it then you're done you're the antithesis of an entrepreneur if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you'll look at that problem and you say, okay, I can't do this, but what can I do to achieve a similar result? And so you mentioned the concept of velocity of money and that, that piqued my interest. Let's dive into that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, it's faster. When people ask, I describe money in the following way. So they call it cash flow, flow being the operative word. Money has to move. In a debt-based economy, Money has to move. When money freezes up, when debt freezes up, money freezes up, velocity comes to a standing still, and our economy shuts down. That's what we experienced a few years back with the Lehman Brothers and everything else, that whole fiasco. That was a perfect example of there was no velocity of money. Nobody was borrowing. Nobody was lending. Everything just came to a halt. Money is a river. You are a fisherman. You are, you are kind of like a filter. Like imagine you put a filter like a two foot by two foot filter with like a mesh in the middle and you lower it into the river. And depending on how fine your filter is, that's what it catches. Depending on how careful and how skillfully you can maneuver that filter relative to the flow of money, flow of the river, that's how much you catch. Making money, anything financial, is a function of seeing yourself as a filter understanding that there's a velocity that's happening and you put yourself in the middle and that's where you educate yourself to find out how more effectively to put yourself in the middle of the fastest stream of money you can because the faster the stream of money, the more of it settles down into your filter. So hopefully that imagery helps somebody to kind of conceptualize. You know, instead of getting paid monthly as you would on a typical rental, over here, you're getting paid three times a month, four times a month, six times a month, depending on what your minimum stay is that you do on Airbnb and all those platforms. But you're getting paid nightly. You're getting paid a nightly rate. So of course, you're going to make much money. So a unit that generates $1,200, I'll give you an example. We have an apartment complex that I'm launching Airbnb uh, in right now. This is a third unit, a typical apartment that studio apartment in that complex in Phoenix that rents for, I want to say, $750. They're generating between $18 and $2,000 a month as furnished rentals. Now, I actually rent them out 30 night stays because that's what I want to do in the apartment setting. But because the, the, the pricing is calibrated on a nightly rate, it makes twice to three times as much money. So that's your perfect kind of example 
but you can touch and feel of the effect of velocity of money. People come in, they need a place, they're willing to pay a premium, they're going to be out. The next guy comes in, he's also willing to pay a premium. So when you operate at a faster speed, you can expect to make more money. So why is the velocity of money specifically so much better with house hacking? You could just live in a duplex and rent uh, the other half on a 12-month lease. Why would you? If you can get 50 bucks a night and make $1,500 in 30 days by renting it out on Airbnb. So it's, it's just up to you. But is it a little more work? Yeah, because, because it's a business. You're not talking about real estate anymore. You're really talking about a different kind of business. But it works, so who cares? Now I want to touch on a, a topic you wrote about. You wrote that there's about 20 ways to buy a house for $2,000 or less. And I know a lot of people listening to the show today are new investors, and I always get asked how to start investing with very little or no initial capital. And of course, there's going to be a lot of material in those 20 ways to unpack. But give us a high overview of how someone can buy a house with $2,000 or less. What it basically boils down to is you need money to play in the real estate game, but it doesn't have to be your own money. So the real question is, what are the 20 ways in which you can bring outside money into your deal and structure the deal so that it costs you $2,000 or less? Then you can talk about partners, you can talk about debt, you can talk about bridge, you can talk about a lot of things under that umbrella. And by the way, that doesn't really change very much when you get into much larger multi-million dollar assets. Conceptually, things stay very similar. But it all comes down to somebody else has got the money. How do you attract them to what you are doing so you don't have to use your own money? What do you think is the most effective but underutilized strategy for somebody to get started in real estate? House hacking. Why do you think it's so underutilized? Because it's new. Because Robert Kiyosaki didn't write about it. And millions of people didn't read about it. Because those people have read about it, think of it in the wrong way. But I absolutely think it's the absolute best strategy for the new investor. A, the financing is better. B, the payment portal is better. C, the management is better. You've got somebody that you won't have to evict. Why? Because it's not a lease. They're coming in for five days. It's a service agreement. You don't like them, you don't have to let them in ever again. So are there snafus? Yeah, I haven't had any, but I'm sure there are. I've been doing this for a couple of years. And it's just, it's pleasant. Now there's caveats to that. There's, there's ways to do house hack that is going to attract a less problematic circumstance or a more problematic circumstance if you do it wrong. But that's a whole topic. So let's talk about your portfolio today. I know you mentioned you made that big offer today. What does the rest of your portfolio look like? And why did you decide to leave the small multifamily space and start to scale into much larger apartment syndications? Well, what my portfolio looks like is I own apartment complexes with partners. I don't wholly own them. I syndicate them. But I, my partner and I, we are the sponsors and we manage them. And I also have a portfolio from the olden days that I still own a few units on my own. Why did I go here? I think intellectual worth is mostly why. So it's imagine a guy getting up in the morning, like your hair is all over the place. You know, I wake up first thing in the morning, roll out of bed, you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands, you splash your face, your eyes are bloodshot, you can't even see, you see three of you in the mirror, you look in the mirror, and you suddenly realize that dude 
is not the same dude he was yesterday. It's like that cop is fool, and I can't stomach being that guy one more day. I know too much. I can do too much. I can do so much more than the guy that was me yesterday did. So I don't know exactly where to go now, but I can't go and do the same thing again that I did yesterday. So it's that feeling or that perspective on yourself that causes us to experiment and to jump in the rink and try. So for me, it was a natural, I think, evolution of intellectual worth that pushed me there. So I just couldn't be the guy that bought another fourplex or tenplex. I just I couldn't do it. I saw myself differently at one point. So you woke up one morning and realized, I can't buy these anymore. I need to go bigger. What caused that? The fact that I felt that I've discovered everything I needed to... Everything that could be learned about how to play at one level has been learned. I could continue perpetuating that and would have done very fine. I could have bought a bunch of units and I could, you know, I could have continued to do the same old thing. The thing is, that's not what life is about. You're supposed to learn, You're supposed to get smarter, You're supposed to get more efficient, more effective, more intuitive even. That was it. It's like I lose interest in stuff when I don't feel I can learn anything more. So how did you exactly make that jump from, say, fourplex or tenplex even to much larger deals? What did that look like? How did you find partners? How did you, I guess, experiment or learn that side of the business? Well, first of all, it wasn't like it took five years. So it's I don't want to paint a picture of it being like, boom, I snap my fingers and I'm there. It took five years or so of me studying this. And still, I knew very little when I started. But it took a long time of developing intellectual worth. And then you just go and you try and you make offers and experience the wonderful sensation of being under contract and having to come up with $3 million and you have no idea where it's going to come from, but believe in yourself and you believe in your relationships and, and you go for it and you do it. Did you build relationships when you were buying smaller deals, those fourplexes and sixplexes that you're leveraging today to buy your larger deals? It was that, but I also, I write a lot over the last decade. I've written a lot. I've written on bigger pockets. I've met a lot of people on bigger pockets. I've published books. I've sold courses online uh, dealing with real estate. I have many, 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 many students. So it was uh, a natural transition. I wasn't necessarily planning on it working out this way. Like I didn't say to myself, hey, maybe I I'll create a course and I'll sell it to a bunch of students. And then a few of those students might want to invest in deals. That wasn't even within the realm of my thinking at that point. If someone is a newer investor that's done a few deals on their own and they're looking to start raising outside capital from other investors, do you think it's worthwhile for them to start putting content out on the internet, whether it be articles, blog posts, or even posting on social media consistently? Yes. Does it help? Absolutely. You're building your resume, so to speak. You're building your network. And the best way to do it is to deliver value. So if you really, truly... I mean, don't do it for your needs. Do it if you truly want to deliver value to your audience. And if you really want to deliver value and you do it and your audience agrees with you, it'll come after you one way, shape, or form or the other. You don't know how or when or what, but it will. But you got to pay it forward. 
whether it was at the beginning or where you are now, what has been the biggest mistake that you've made in your real estate career? And what would you do differently if you could do it over? I would have started sooner and I probably would have gone bigger sooner, which would have probably happened because, you know, like if you move the entire time frame up, I wish I'd have started a few years earlier. And for those listening that are just getting started, maybe they should start going bigger sooner? No, you can only go bigger when you're ready to go bigger. That moment of looking at yourself in the mirror and realizing you're not the little guy anymore, you're the big guy. You just can't write that check yet because you haven't made it yet. But in your own mind, you are already the big guy, at least bigger than you were yesterday. That's a natural process. Now, for some people, it might take three days. For other people, it may 15 years. But however long it takes, it's a process. You can't rush it. Awesome. Ben, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Where can the audience go to connect with you, learn from all the resources that you've put out there? Justaskbenwhy.com. www.justaskbenwhy.com. There's a lot of resources on it. All right. I'll be sure to put links to various different things that we talked about throughout the conversation in the show notes, as well as the website that was just mentioned in the show notes. You guys can go connect with Ben there. Ben, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Before we wrap up the show today, I want to answer two questions that I've been getting pretty frequently from people in our Facebook group, which is our community of everyone that likes to listen to the show and wants to connect with other like-minded investors. And the first question is about how I calculate returns on investment properties. So I've talked about how when I'm really looking for deals, I'm analyzing upwards of 10, 15, 20 deals a day. People are asking me how I'm able to do that and still get other things done. And the reason for that is because I use rules of thumb when I'm calculating the returns for my rental properties. When you're calculating the numbers on a potential rental property, there are four big variables that you must estimate. And those four variables are the vacancy rate, capex, repair and maintenance, and property management. These numbers are going to vary from market to market, but there are some general rules of thumb that I've developed from investing in various markets across the United States. As you get more familiar with analyzing rental property deals, you'll also learn the general rules of thumb for your markets that you're investing in. By using rules of thumb, you can save a lot of time by eliminating deals that aren't even close to your investing criteria. When I was first starting to analyze deals, I would spend 25, 30 minutes on analyzing one deal. Now, I've gotten that analysis time down significantly, but also I'm not wasting time on deals that don't make sense to me. So I do a full analysis from beginning to end only to get to the end and realize the numbers aren't even close. And so I figured there had to be a rule of thumb or something I could use to eliminate that property right from the beginning. So the first thing I do is look at the 1% rule. And that says that the monthly gross rent, which is just the total monthly rents that you're going to get in for that property, need to be equal to at least 1% of the total purchase price. So if you're going to be purchasing a property for say $100,000, you would like to look for a property that rents for at least $1,000 a month. Now this is not a hard and fast rule. Just because a property meets this rule on the surface doesn't mean I'm going to run out and buy it. But again, it helps me eliminate those properties that aren't even close. If there's a property that's at 0.25% or even half a percent, I know that that's probably not going to be a good deal. So I don't even waste my time looking at those. I only look at properties that are close to or at least exceed the 1% rule. And to take it even a step further, I've developed two sets 
of rules of thumb for those four variables that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And then I run those numbers through my model very quickly. It only takes me about five minutes because I have an Excel spreadsheet that I've created that I just plug these numbers into. And it tells me whether this property is even close or not to what I require for my return numbers. If I use these rules of thumb and the numbers aren't even close, then again, I just eliminate that and I don't waste any more time on it and I go into the next property. But if using these rules of thumb, the numbers are pretty close, then I can go in, get the actual numbers, do more research on that specific neighborhood, that specific city, that specific type of property in that location, find out exactly what those numbers are going to be. I can call property managers. I can call real estate agents. I can really get the actual numbers that it's going to be and find out specifically what I expect that deal to be in terms of returns. But I really like to use the rules of thumb to eliminate any deals that aren't even close to meeting my criteria. That allows me to save a lot of time and analyze upwards of 10, 20, 30 deals a day without wasting a ton of time. And so to quickly go through these rules of thumb, like I said, I have two sets. One is conservative and one is aggressive. And so for the conservative set, I set vacancy to 12%. I set CapEx to 5%, repairs and maintenance totaling 10%, and property management at 11%. For the aggressive set, I use 5% for vacancy, 2.5% for CapEx, 5% for repair and maintenance, and 8% for property management. Now, keep in mind that these are going to vary based on your market, the purchase price of the property, the classification of the neighborhood. So a class B neighborhood property is generally going to have less vacancy than a class C or C minus property. So these numbers are going to get adjusted depending on the specific property that you're buying and where it's located. But again, these just give you a general rule of thumb to quickly go through the deal and find out if it's even close and if it's worth diving into more. And I know I just spoke through those numbers kind of quickly, but I have a post about this on Instagram and I also posted about it in our Facebook group. So if you're interested in connecting with other like-minded investors, be sure to go over and join our Facebook group. You can find it by searching real estate and millennial investing in the Facebook search bar. Then just look for the show's graphic and you can request to join the group. And also, like I said on Instagram, you can follow me and connect with me. My username is the Robert Leonard. And again, that's the Robert Leonard. And I posted about this. I talk about it more in detail. If you have any questions, feel free to send me a DM, comment on the post. I'm happy to explain this a little bit more. And I hope it helps you guys cut down your analysis time and help you find more deals. And the second question I want to answer on today's show was one that I found very interesting. And when I was asked it, it was asked on a Facebook Live that I did in our Facebook group. And It got me to stop and think for a second because I thought that the person asking the question actually had a very good point, not something I really thought about too, too much. And so I wanted to address it briefly here on the show, answer the question so that if anybody else listening to the podcast today that didn't make it to the Facebook Live that we had can also hear my response and hopefully it'll help them as well. So the question was, what do I do if I'm not passionate about investing but I still want to be an investor because I think it's best for my financial future. And for me, like I said, that, that kind of caught me off guard for a second. It, it really made me think because for the last 10 years, I've been super passionate about investing, both in the stock market and in real estate. It's just something that is innate in me that I really enjoy. I love studying it. Anytime it comes to watching TV shows or reading books, I always want to pick up an investing or business book. It's just something I enjoy personally. So 
I hadn't really given much thought to the, the, the people out there that don't feel the same way that I do, the people that aren't passionate about it. Yet, I talk about this not, because, not only because I'm passionate about it, but also because it's something that people need to do regardless of whether you're passionate about it or not. Ultimately, the goal is to build our net worth and build our wealth so that we're able to spend more time doing the things we love with the ones we love. So for me, it was just a really interesting perspective that I hadn't really considered just given where I'm coming from. And so if you're not passionate about it, don't spend your time doing it. All of these things that we talk about are very important and they'll help you lead to a successful financial future and help you build wealth. But that doesn't mean you have to do the specific things we talk about in order to reach those goals. So what I mean by that is oftentimes we talk about being active investors here. So I talk about how I purchase rental properties myself, and then I manage them or I have a property manager manage them for me, but they're physical assets that I've actually acquired myself and I'm actively participating in owning them. And that does take time for me, but it's something I enjoy because I'm passionate about it. For those people who aren't, that doesn't mean I don't think you should invest in real estate. I do think you should be invested in real estate, but it doesn't mean that you have to be the one actively purchasing those deals. It doesn't mean you have to be the one that's actively sourcing those deals from Realtor.com or Zillow and actually finding them, analyzing the deals, doing all of the work that goes into buying these properties. Thankfully, today, there are resources available like Fundrise and a bunch of other crowdfunding platforms that you could use to invest in real estate, and you don't have to do anything except for invest. So it's important for you to understand the topics. It's important for you to understand what's going on and how you should be investing. But you don't necessarily have to spend all the time doing the types of things that we often talk about here on the show. If you're not passionate about it, allocate some of your money towards real estate, whether it be through crowdfunding. You could also purchase REITs in the stock market. That's a whole nother conversation that we'll have a full episode about. But there's different ways that you can get exposure to real estate. You can invest in REITs or through crowdfunding, get your exposure to real estate very passively, not have to spend very much time on them and then continue on with doing things you're more passionate about. Rather than learning the specifics on how to find property managers or find real estate agents or analyze real estate deals, you can just learn the basics, invest through those different mediums that take less of your time. You might not get as good of a return, but you'll get some exposure to real estate still. And then you can go on and do all the different things that you're more passionate about. So similar to the stock market, if you're not interested in analyzing individual companies, then you don't have to do that. You can just buy an ETF, consistently purchase that over time, consistently contribute to that, and you will do very well over the long term. And the same goes for real estate. If you're not passionate about it, don't force yourself to do it. That's not going to lead to a happy life for you. Get some exposure to real estate through the various different ways you can. You could do syndications, REITs, crowdfunding, all of the different... We talk about various different ways you could do that here on the show. And then spend your time go do other things that really make you happy and do all the other things that you're passionate about in life. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.